with you in this wise. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? For God gives judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. Thank you, Ron. Have you ever experienced that early morning smell of a bakery? Pretty good. The air's still. There's not all the uh, petrol noises, us uh, petrol smells around because no one's bustling around. It's just the smell of the bakery. And I tell you what, if you ever go on a on a health kick and you get out exercising early in the morning, you want to make sure you're not going past the bakery because your health kick doesn't last very long. But sometimes it's not just the smell of baking bread. It's actually the smell of something else, of yeast. And that's kind of not the same smell, is it? It's that it's a kind of sour smell. It's not, not the most beautiful thing. Maybe some of us have done the sourdough lockdown thing. Have you heard about this? People going back to the art of making a, their own sourdough culture, their sourdough starter, and growing it in a little jar in their house and then baking their own loaf of sourdough bread each day. Has anyone done this? No? There we go. Um... Well, if you've ever made your own bread at home, you know this, that it's kind of common ingredients, but it's got this really important factor in it called yeast. And it goes through a fermentation where things kind of grow. So you put it in a warm place and gradually, bit by bit, it grows through the dough and makes it rise. And only when the yeast has gone through the whole dough do you then put it in the oven to bake. In this reading that Ron's just given for us, Paul uses this as kind of his, his main metaphor that he builds all that he has to say to us this morning around. And it's the main metaphor for what he sees going on in this church in Corinth. Let's just dive straight in. What was going on? Well, a bit full on, but we're told there in the very first verse, a man who's a member of the church and claims to be a follower of Jesus, is sleeping with his stepmom. We're not sure about how this came about, but that's rotten, isn't it? 
This is bad stuff. He's not just having an affair with someone. He's having an affair with his dad's wife. Now, you might go for a second, does that mean it's his mother? We don't think that's what it's saying. Otherwise, Paul would have just written, you're sleeping with your mum. But it's likely that his dad's remarried or something like that. And, well, really what we've got to pick up is what he says is that the the behaviour going on here, if that's just left unchecked in this church, well, it's going to be like yeast through a loaf of dough. It's going to kind of spread its way through everything. His example is working its way through the church. It's already happening. And it's not working for good, but for evil. So Paul tells them to take action. And where does he go with this? He actually tells him, tells uh, tells the church to put this man out of the life of the church. Now, as an Australian, as you think about the values of our culture, how do you feel about Paul telling the Corinthian church to do that? Not that she's an Australian, but she kind of sums up the way that that our Western modern culture thinks about this kind of stuff. Angelina Jolie kind of captures the vibe of this when she says this, I don't believe in guilt. As long as you never intentionally hurt anyone, I think you should live completely free. You can just hear the bloke going, well, I can't help how much I love her. I can't, I know that it's my dad's, but in my heart, that's just how I feel. I've got to be true to myself. We've had these conversations with people, haven't we? There'll be people in your life, I'm sure, I know that there's plenty in mine, maybe it's the position that I've been in at some point, but, but you don't have to scratch very far to people looking at the situation that they're in and their primary justification is, look, I don't mean to hurt anyone, I don't want to hurt anyone, and so long as that's kind of the way, that's my guideline, then sure, anything goes. Now, some people might even say, didn't Jesus himself say, do not judge, in Matthew 7? Now, while Paul says that it's none of his business to judge the behaviour of those who don't claim to be followers of Jesus, as comes up in those last kind of paragraph that Ron read for us, and it's really helpful, it says, like, if you were to um, not associate with people who are sexually immoral outside of the church, well you're pretty much going to have to, you know, pack up and leave the earth, jump on Elon Musk's ship and and head on out of space. It's not possible, is what he's saying. But that's not, he's not talking about that. He's talking about people who are in the church. He's actually saying that people should judge the behaviour of this guy who is sleeping with his stepmother. And we've got to wrestle with this, because on one hand we might go, it's just hideous. Of course he must. But then, if any aspect of our culture is ringing in our ears, well, we might be struggling to think, doesn't that sound a bit harsh? How can that be the loving thing to do? But I'll tell you what, Paul's really upfront where his motive is coming from. And it's out of love. And it's not just 
the feeling, but the real love shown by God to us. He's talking about God's love for us and talking about living with real love for each other. So in chapter 13 of Corinthians, we have that beautiful love poem. You might have had it read at your wedding. Love is patient. Love is kind. That's in this letter. That's where this comes from. And Paul is getting there. And as he introduces this at the end of chapter 12, Paul says that love, this kind of love, God's kind of love, is the most excellent way to live. The most excellent way. The most excellent type of love. Love that has a grounding in God and God's work and God's created order. So we're going to need to understand what love really is to work out how we need to respond when stuff happens among us that is morally wrong. That's kind of our question this morning. When stuff happens among us as Australians, in this Australian culture, who are followers of Jesus, stuff that God says is morally wrong, then how should we respond? Well, Like I said, we're back in the letter of 1 Corinthians and we're going to be here for a while. So it's worth just um, remembering just a few things about it. Uh, A few things first about the city of Corinth that he's writing to. He's writing to a church in this place called Corinth, which is an important city in Greece, which is a colony of Rome and within the Roman Empire. It was kind of functionally like a Rome away from Rome, if you like. Greece... Italy's over here, Rome's over there. And it had a really important status in the empire. And even more than that, Corinth sat on this narrow bit of land that joins the northern and southern part of Greece, like you can see there. And lots of travellers come, th- come and go through there. They even had a, a I think it's an isthmus, which is like a little canal, or maybe a decent-sized canal, so that you could cut through with your boats. But basically the effect of this is that there's travellers and merchants and people from all over the world washing through this place. And you can kind of get a sense, like just think for a second, I don't want to um, say something positive or negative about Byron Bay because I don't want to start an argument, but Byron Bay is a bit of that kind of place. There's people that are drawn to that place for a whole bunch of different reasons. And you go there and you see all types of people. Kind of picture something like that, where you've got all these different influences and cultures and the practices that go with it, okay, in this one city. And that status as a world city was actually worn by the Corinthians as a badge of honour. They were proud of this kind of cosmopolitan city that they'd created and all the things that came into that, the different ideas and beliefs, the wealth that that brought the wealth of, that was in that city. And this was a city with a booming sex trade. It was a big part of it. The Corinthians were all about kind of living in the moment, living in that good life from a worldly sense. This is the city that Paul came to and preached the message about Jesus where he came with a message of a narrow road, of a death and resurrection. Back in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, we've already read this, 2, verse 2, he says that 
when he was there, he resolved to know nothing with you, while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was what he preached there. And as he did, the people believed and a church was formed. Of course it did, because that message is powerful. For all the draw of all the things on offer in this smorgasbord, all the smorgasbord of things on offer in this cosmopolitan city, of course the gospel took root there, because it is a powerful message. But as we're going to see over the next few weeks, it's the yeast that needed to properly work its way out in the life of the church, not what was actually going on. Because the values and beliefs of the city were still shaping the local Christian's life. I think I said this earlier, I quoted it from someone else who I forget now, but the problem in the church in Corinth is not that the church is in this place called Corinth, it's not like they need to pack up and set up a community somewhere else, it's the problem that there's too much of Corinth in the church helpful way to remember it. Now, in the next chapter, we kind of see what's at the heart of this problem in this whole section that we're going to be in, from about chapter 5 to chapter 7. And actually, Paul quotes back something that the Corinthians kind of live by as as a motto of their their, um, living. It's in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, and they were known for saying this, I have the right to do anything. Evangelina Jolie said, I can live um, as long as I don't hurt anyone, intentionally hurt anyone, then that's okay. The Corinthians would be like, pretty much, I have the right to do everything. Literally, everything is for me. Sounds like what we're up against culturally, isn't it? Not that different. Very modern sounding of ideas of how to get ahead in the world. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 12, this is all just a bit of this recapping for us. We saw that that, that actually played out, I have the right to do anything, in, in the church in a really unhealthy way because they, they would say, oh, well, I, I'm going to choose which pastor I want to follow. I'm going to be the original church shopper and, and, and choose, um, you know, I'm going to follow Paul, I'm going to follow Paulus, I'm going to follow Cephas, I'm going to follow Christ. And it resulted in division. And it relied all on this human wisdom. And so Paul, in that situation, called for their unity and reminded them that it wasn't just blind unity, but it was unity that comes from the power of the gospel. And so this movement has happened now in chapter 5, verse 1, where we start this morning, to the problem of sexual immorality. Now, through these chapters 5 to 7, they deal pretty significantly with sexual sin in a whole bunch of ways. And if you look down in verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9, I think this is, won't come up on the screen, but I'll read it for you. He said, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, that actually gives us some insight that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, as in it's actually the second letter, so we don't have that letter that he's referring to there. But he's already written to them about this. And this is the more significant point. It's not just something that's cropped up. This is actually something that these guys have been battling with for a significant period of time. It's not just something that's happened overnight. 
but for a, a, an amount of time, Paul has known of this problem. He hasn't ignored the problem. He's already written to them about it. But he hasn't given up either. He hasn't just gone, well, there you go. That's just what they're going to be like and become resigned to it. And he hasn't just cut them off either because he knows the power of the gospel. And that's where he goes and applies to this. Now, just on that fact, because this is relatively soft um, in what it deals with about sexual stuff today, but I will just warn you, if you've got kids that like to sit in church rather than joining kids' church, or if you find yourself at home watching on a screen, this deals with some pretty heavy stuff. Maybe read ahead in chapters 5, 6, and 7, just in case you don't want to have to have any um, conversations with your kids that they're not ready to have yet. But we're going to not shy away from any of this stuff. Because Paul doesn't. Because this kind of stuff is really important to address. It's very important to address because it actually takes up such a personal part of people's lives and, and it, it's, it's a very emotive part of people's lives. And sometimes those emotions are, are joy and happiness and Really, when we understand sex in God's good design, it's got a unique, a unique ability to strengthen a relationship, the relationship of marriage that it's designed for. But it's, it's not that easy to control in our hearts and minds and, th- and all of that for a whole bunch of reasons. I'll say a bit more about that in a second. But just to remember that, that when that goes astray, like, like everything goes astray, like when everything that is affected by sin is, is broken by sin, it's very easy, well, for guilt and shame to have more of an effect than they ought for people who have faith in the Lord Jesus, who has died that he might deal with guilt and shame whose forgiveness is complete over every area of our life. In the past, um, the way the church has talked, taught on sex and sexuality has at times been to treat sexual sin like a complete, complete deal-breaker in the Christian life. I'm sure at different times you could testify to someone that's ended up in a relationship before they're married or maybe they've fallen pregnant uh, as a teenager or, or before they were married or, or they were, you know, caught in some other kind of thing. And, and you know that for them it just meant an instant kind of cutting off before it was an appropriate time for that to happen. This guy, he's there and he's out and proud that he's, you know, in bed with his stepmother And we'll see that that's more of the problem, that he just has no shame over that, that he's trying to advocate that that's okay. But there is is a road um, to deal with, with sexual sin before it just gets to that point where someone will say, accept me or, or, you know, leave me alone. I've actually heard recently more and more 
people who grew up as Christians around the era, era that I did. So maybe I've heard this from Christian leaders who are kind of in their early 40s. Um, I'm in my mid-30s, younger than some of us. But I don't know how long this actually went on. But there was a real era, era of, of something called Christian purity culture. I don't know if you ever caught wind of this or maybe read material on this. And it was a helpful thing, and I, I would say, because it taught the church well in areas of sex and relationships from the point of view of what God's ideal design is. So that people were really clear as, as a sexual revolution went on over the last half of the last century as to, no, this is really what God has designed for us. To live outside of that design is disaster. And it was really helpful on that front. But, and what these people have been saying is that there's actually unhelpful elements of that. Unhelpful elements where it's been striving for something that's unattainable without the grace of God. Because if any of us just tries in our own strength to be sexually pure, well, we're stuffed. We can't do anything in our, purely in our own strength. That's the reality of human brokenness. And so, without grace, of course, we'll wind up feeling failures and broken and just hopeless. And what I've loved about these chapters of 1 Corinthians, just as I've studied them, is that their candid dealing with this stuff faces the reality of human brokenness and explains grace into it. And we need both to be clear on God's design. And we need both to be clear on God's gracious dealing with us. For these Corinthians, it's not simply the problem of sexual sin. But it's the whole picture of how to deal without in the open sin, be it sexual or be it a whole bunch of other things. He talks about idolatry and greed and all, there's a whole bunch of things in that, even just in that reading. How do you deal with someone that's just trying to pass that stuff off in their life as, as no issue at all, as just okay? Now we will learn in chapter 6 how damaging sexual sin is to a person personally. Paul says, you sin against your own body. It's pretty full on. But here he starts with the damage it's causing to their church and causing to their witness to those outside the church. These Corinthians are actually, this is mind-boggling, but they're pleased with themselves. Because they're being Corinthian, aren't they? Oh, where anything goes, we're, we're, you know, we're embracing all of this distorting what grace actually means. They're arrogant and they're proud. They're so impressed with themselves that they're blind to the damage that unchecked evil behavior is having on the whole church. Back to chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Just like yeast put in a batch of dough, the bad behavior is... the the bad behavior they're turning a blind eye to is actually spreading and affecting people in the church and it will badly affect people outside the church as well. So what does Paul say to do about this? Well, verse 2 tells them where to start and that's to mourn. This is lamentable. The beginning of repentance is always brokenheartedness. 
brokenheartedness. That's the proper response to sin. Brokenheartedness at its reality. And then Paul tells the Corinthians to take, sorry, the next thing that he tells them to take uh, as a step is to stop ignoring the really bad thing that he's doing and put him out of the church. But putting him out of the church isn't meant to be a permanent thing. Handing him over to Satan is a way of talking about putting him out there into the world. He's in the realm of the world, worldly people. That's all that that means. Don't read into it anything. But it's only to the point where he realizes that it isn't right. It's for him to achieve repentance. That's what needs to happen. It's drastic, but it's last resort. Now, Paul just hasn't kind of gone, oh, I need to write to these guys, I'm going to pick an illustration, yep, yeast and bread, they'll get that, and thrown it in here. Now, he actually, he tells us why he's talking about all this yeast and bread stuff. And to understand that, we've got actually got to go back and understand a really significant part of Bible history back with the, Egypt, uh, so the, the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites and their Passover meal. This is a little quick crash course, if we've never heard it before, or just to remind us what happened. Back in the second book of your Bible, you you read this and it carries on through to um, Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible, and most of the quotes I've got up here are from that book. Here we remember that Israel, the descendants of Abraham, they were slaves in Egypt. And God set them free through ten mighty signs, which culminated in the tenth sign on the night of the first Passover, which the Jews still celebrate to this day. The figures of power and hope in every proud Egyptian family, that is the firstborn son, they died that night, they perished. But not in the Israelite families, because God's instruction, at God's instruction, the lamb that they would eat as a sacred meal that night was sacrificed in place of their firstborn son. Its blood, you might remember, was painted on the door frames and the messenger of death, or the angel of death, passed by, literally passed over and let them live. Pharaoh then rushed Israel out of Egypt and let them live. And they found freedom. So Israel's last meal in captivity was a lamb and bread that was made quickly. That is, it was made with no time to let it rise. So it was made without yeast. Now, the book of Deuteronomy records how God then commanded every year they would eat the same meal. They were to clear all the yeast out of their homes and cook unleavened bread. And remember how God had rescued them from slavery to be his people in the promised land? Well, at the heart of all the commands for these people is how to lead the life as the saved people of God in the promised land. A lot of parallels to what we're reading in 1 Corinthians. So we read in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Got that one there? They were told to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. Their whole life together is meant to be defined by love. 
but their history in the land is one of not living in freedom that God has bought for them, but living, wanting freedom from the God that saved them, trying to fly away and do their own thing. They're people that really didn't love God. Deuteronomy, the last uh, book of this first section of our Bibles, ends with the prediction of their rebellion, but also a promise, a promise that salvation will come, that God will give them new hearts that love and honour God. Now, right, why is this all relevant? Because right in the middle of this reading, what does Paul say in the end of verse 7? Well, let's read all of verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, who is our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's Paul saying? He's saying, as it was for the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt, so it is for believers of of Jesus, Christians, who have been rescued out of sin. Leading a new life in Christ. How has it come in Jesus' death on the cross? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul tells us what the result of that is. In Christ, we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. And we know that it's it's at a whole other level for us than it was for the Israelites. For where they were rescued from a, a, a situation, we're rescued from an eternity of separation from God. From our biggest problem, sin. And where they were given the law, we're given... God's Spirit Himself, the Spirit of our God, to live in us, to guide us in living this out. The forgiveness from God for all our wrongs is like being washed clean before God, God taking us as our very own, set apart to live for God. That's what that word sanctified means, to be set apart. And God declaring us not guilty. Because Jesus has paid the price for our evils at the cross. And God declares us righteous because he counts us, counts Jesus' perfect life record as if it were ours. That's what it means by justified. We know that to be a Christian, we've got to believe that Jesus died for us, yeah? We know that that means that we'll be in heaven, yeah? But we can never, we can never grow tired of just deepening our understanding of what it means that Jesus did that for us. And so that's what we're doing. You are not guilty. And that's where all the power lies to deal with this situation they've got with this bloke, to deal with the church's reaction to it, to deal with the problem at the heart of it. That's where all the power is. Just as the Israelites were to keep the Passover festival, followers of Jesus are to always remember how they've been rescued. And we declare that every day into our own life, don't we? And for us, well, Paul says there, 
It's going to mean to, to receive that, to put aside things, to put aside malice, to put aside wickedness and live in sincerity and truth. That's what we mean when we declare that we have been set free. That's what Christian freedom is. Jesus gave his life to set us free from ourselves into the freedom to belong to him. So then, what does that new life look like? Well, I don't know if you've tried to make bread lately. Maybe you have done the sourdough thing, but before that was popular, you get yeast in little packets, don't you? It cuts all the work out of it. Little, I think they're seven grams, very specific, aren't they? You shake it in, you make bread. I've even done that. But in the old days, people made bread, or, or in these days of lockdown, people have set aside a piece of the dough to use for the next day and the next day and the next day. And like we've already said, the Jews had the practice of annually clearing out that old yeast and starting fresh at each Passover. This is the metaphor for the change that Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to make, to get rid of the old. To get rid of the old behavior because you're already new. You've been made new before God in Jesus. You are forgiven, accepted, and loved. And this must result in change in how you relate to one another, how we relate to one another and to our wider world. We are parts, as God's people, of the greater whole. What we do inevitably affects other people for good or for evil. Later in Corinthians, Paul goes into great detail in that as he talks about the body and each part. We see that in the example of this member of the Corinthian church who's sleeping with his stepmother. It's disastrous for this church. With their lives and their church being shaped by the values and beliefs of the city of Corinth, they've ended up pleased with themselves, arrogant and proud. And it's actually their pride that is the most damaging thing. What he's doing is awful, but their response is blinding them to the damage that's being done. That's what bad yeast does. Infects the whole batch of dough. Unacknowledged evil behavior in the end affects the whole church. Just a, a few years ago, it'll be in our memories that this happened. Australia held a royal commission into the failures of institutions, a lot of them churches. And sometimes these evils are things that the regular person in the street can see are wrong. And they're things that should have been confronted straight away. So it was with the case of the men in Corinth. Even their culture this was recognized by the person on the street as wrong. Paul tells us that. You're sinning in a way that even the pagans don't tolerate. What should we do? If it ever comes to it, we've got to be willing to put the person out in love, in the hope that they might be restored. And whenever that happens, and if that ever happens, It's with an open door to reconciliation. It's with deep prayer for that person and love for that person. Hope that their exclusion at any rate will result in repentance. But that's not a hasty first move to take, is it? 
takes a long time to get there. That's how you deal with the unrepentant belief. But when a sin creeps up, when any of us fall into sin, well, we need to live in a, in a healthy community that knows how to deal with that, that knows how to apply grace to one another. For some, this is for someone who won't face the issue, but, but we want to be people that are willing to face the issue because we're secure in the gospel that we believe. Now, for this term, if you ever follow along with the Bible study material we put out, we're actually borrowing a whole um, packaged one, and that's already up on our website, um, and I'll email it out as well. But in the introduction to this, there's actually a whole section that I'd encourage us to read that talks about how to deal with this stuff. And the aspect that applies to this section is being willing to face whatever sin is going on in any of our lives. Being willing to face it. Being real about the person and facing the issue. And if you think of other F words that might describe how we would otherwise respond, it's, it's not faking, it's not fleeing, it's not fighting, it's not freaking, and it's not flopping, but facing. You know, if you look at where the church is in Australia in 2021 and where it's been, you'll notice declines. You'll notice that there aren't as many churches and they're generally not as big as they once might have been. But you will probably also have experienced that the place of the gospel in a lot of the churches that just are dead or dying, well, they're a place to fake it, to put on your best front and not be, really be real about your life and your, and your engagement with sin and, and how you deal with it. The gospel is sufficient for all of that. We can face, we can face this stuff. And just the only other thing to add to this is to remember that we don't face it alone. That's one of the great things that we value about community, that God calls us into community partly for this reason, that we bear these burdens with one another. That's what the Christian, Corinthian Christians, they weren't doing that. They weren't doing that at all. Sometimes this is going to mean tough conversations. Sometimes this is going to mean just checking in early. That accountability. This happens in our gospel community groups. It happens in the people that we serve alongside. We're not just out doing things on our own. The context for it is actually secondary because it's actually about being in a bunch of trusting relationships where we can deal with this. Now, maybe you need to have a tough conversation right now. Maybe this is just something you've got to tuck away for in the future when you've got to confront something. But Christian community is always going to be the best context for this change. 
because that's the context that God has given to us. Christian communities where things are founded in grace, where we're genuinely people that are here to seek the good of others. We don't climb on each other to get above each other. No, we're here for each other. Sometimes saying the tough things, sometimes listening to the tough things, but always doing it in love and humility and for the joy of restoration, for the joy of growth, that the glory of God would be seen and known. Amen? Let's pray to those ends. Lord, we just, just acknowledge that We've started and we will continue to delve into things that aren't always that easy to think about, to listen to, or to talk about. So Lord, just grow us in our ability to do that, and underneath all that, grow us in our confidence in the gospel and the safety that he gives us, that he gives us to do that. Father, as your people here, as your people in this community, Lord, grow and build up what it means for us to be your people. Lord, strengthen the relationships that we have. Lord, that we might truly be people that by your grace, are safe to bear one another's burdens with. Lord, that we might be people that look to encourage, to strengthen, to live for the good of each other. Lord, protect us from being people that just talk about that and enable us by your Holy Spirit to be people that live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.